Hello, friends. This is the Neatarts Friends Church podcast. We are Jesus people, Kingdom of God people, welcoming, yearning, sharing. And we're glad you're connecting here with us. We'd love to connect in person as well. If you're inclined to support this podcast or for more information, just hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. That's neatartsfriends.org. Let's jump into today's sermon. I cannot find a way to do this. How many times in a day or a week do you say or think this phrase? And where are you when you say it or think it? Are you staring at a computer screen about to pull your hair out? Are you elbow deep in the guts of a car that isn't running properly, nursing an injury or an illness, trying to recover? Standing in the kitchen with pots steaming and timers beeping, staring at bank statements or bills, on the phone with the insurance company, working on a home repair, renovation, looking at a calendar, trying to make the pieces fit, in the middle of a tense or complex workplace with children or students feeling like you don't know your next best move. I cannot find a way to do this. It's not a good feeling. It's an exasperating feeling, a frustrating feeling, an exhausting feeling. So if you're listening along with someone, or even if you're alone, without using any words, show us what this feeling feels like using only your body, your hands, your mouth, your face, your breath, your back. Show us what does it feel like when you cannot find a way to do this. So go ahead, do that now. All right. This brings us to our gospel story today, Luke chapter 5, 15 through 19 is where we are starting. So here it is. Yet the news about Jesus spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. One day, Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee, and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat, and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, They went up on the roof, and they lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. Sometimes, the thing you cannot find a way to do doesn't have to do with your own well-being. Sometimes, you are carrying the weight of someone else's well-being, an aging parent, 
a friend fighting an addiction, a friend going through something really difficult, a child in a season of turmoil, a loved one facing a crisis, a neighbor. There are a million different versions of this. And throughout the many different seasons of life, each person has a changing amount of capacity, limitations, and challenges, which means that sometimes you end up carrying not only your own burdens, but their burdens, other people's burdens. Their well-being feels like it is at least somewhat dependent upon you. You feel like you're carrying the weight of their stuff. And that weight may strain your emotions, your bank account, your relationships, your calendar, your energy, your muscles, your patience, your anxiety, your sleep. Sometimes in the middle of carrying the weight of someone else's well-being, you bump up against an obstacle that feels insurmountable. Or in the words of Michael Scott, insurmountable. It's, I cannot find a way to do this. And it's, it's, everything is complicated. Everything is constipated. It's, you try and try and try, but your way is blocked. Now, if it was just your problem, you might curl up in a ball and sing yourself a sad song about giving up. But that doesn't feel like an option because this is about the well-being of someone else. You feel like someone else is depending upon you. And so you dig deep. You, you get creative. You make a way where there is no way. You find alternative solutions. You start doing things that might be considered unconventional, unorthodox. You summon your inner MacGyver. You put it in get-or-done gear. You become daring. Your imagination turns on. You find a way where there is no way. And often in the process of making a way where there is no way, you make a huge mess that you know you're going to have to pay for. You're going to have to clean up later. There's often a price to be paid when you make a way where there is no way. Unorthodox solutions end up offending people. Protocol is ignored. Rules are broken. Lines are crossed. Things get broken. Tools are used incorrectly. Messes are made. Part of the human experience is that we wish people understood us. But in one way or another, we all feel misunderstood. We all feel misinterpreted. Think about the frustration and ultimately the sadness that you feel when you encounter people who do not see you the way that you see yourself. You wish that other people saw your real intent, your real purpose, your true heart in the midst of the messes you make. Someone on the outside of the situation could sit back with a critical eye and they could talk about how you didn't go th about things in the right way. And they could point out what you should have done and what a mess you made. 
they don't see how complicated and desperate it all felt. And oftentimes, after all the dust has settled, you look back and you might even say, I'm not totally proud of what I just did. Uh, or you might say, I wouldn't recommend that someone else do it the way I just did it. It's simply that you didn't know what else to do. You couldn't find another way. You were desperate. You were trying to keep things afloat. You were trying to do what needed to be done. You were going to bat for someone else. You were sticking your neck out for them. You couldn't leave them alone to suffer. You had to do something. And you weren't trying to be a jerk or a bully or rude or impolite to anyone. It's just that you were desperate to help this person. And because of your commitment to this person, you were trying to find a way where there was no way. And you wish that someone could see your heart. H have you ever been the roof breaker? Have you ever been the mess maker? Have you ever wished that someone could see your heart? It's kind of obvious, you know, as a general rule, people don't hand out attaboys when you destroy someone else's property, like take apart their roof. If I imagine myself in this gospel story as the one breaking the roof open, I can hear both of my parents in my head and they're saying, Aaron, what were you thinking? You can't go busting other people's roofs. That's not the way to fix problems. You can't do that. Do you know how much this is going to cost to repair? You're going to you're going to end up paying for this. And I can hear me saying something very similar to my own children, saying, "Look, no matter how much you care about your friends, you can't go busting other people's roofs open. You have to have a little patience." You totally disrupted that meeting. Jesus was giving a really good talk, and you messed it up. You should have waited until it was over. Part of the human experience is that we all wish that people understood us. But in one way or another, we all feel misunderstood. We all feel misinterpreted. So... A quick discussion question or reflection if you're listening alone. Think about someone who interpreted you well when others were misinterpreting you. How did it feel to have someone interpret you well? So take a moment, reflect on that, chat about that. This is quite the scene in the Gospel of Luke. The Pharisees were eager to see how Jesus was interpreting the law and the prophets. The four friends in the story were eager to see how Jesus would interpret their messmaking. 
and the paralyzed man was eager to see how Jesus would interpret his need. He lived in a day where his condition of being paralyzed was interpreted by most people as a curse from God, a punishment for sins committed by him or by his parents. And so Jesus was surrounded by the expert interpreters of the law and prophets. They were the keepers of orthodoxy. They were focused on spelling out exactly what it meant to obey Moses and the prophets 24-7 in everyday life, and they were filling the room. They traveled from all the far corners of Palestine to converge upon this Jesus guy who's claiming to be the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, which that language there is claiming to be giving the true meaning, the significance, the real intent or purpose of what has been written in the scriptures. They had heard that he was interpreting the scriptures differently. He was healing on the Sabbath. He was casting out demons. He was violating clean and unclean rules like touching lepers. And so here they were, filling up the house. They were listening to Jesus. Now, remember that in ancient Palestine, a teacher sat to teach. His sitting was a sign of honor and authority. So notice that Jesus is the one teaching in this text, in this story. But look at the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. It says that they are sitting there. Their posture appears to communicate a desire to be the ones in authority of the situation. Like, they are somehow evaluating Jesus or judging Jesus or or something. Their posture does not appear to be the posture of learning. And meanwhile, the four unnamed friends are finding a way through this roof in the most unorthodox of ways because of a situation of human need because the room is filled with the keepers of orthodoxy. This, this scene captures so much of our human experience. It's that we don't only need Jesus to interpret the law and the prophets for us. We do need that, for sure, to express their true intent and meaning. And we need Jesus to interpret us, to know our true intent our meaning. What's really going on with us? So let's read the rest of the story. Luke 5 verse 20. When Jesus saw their faith, that's the four friends of the paralyzed man, he said to the paralyzed man, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And immediately he stood up in front of them. 
he took what he had been lying on and he went home, praising God. Everyone was amazed. They gave praise to God. They were filled with awe. They said, we have seen remarkable. It's paradoxical. It's paradoxos. We have seen remarkable things today. Notice what is captured in this beautiful moment. Jesus simultaneously sees what is very best about you and what is the very worst about you. And his orientation towards you is release, forgiveness, healing, and wholeness. Notice how Jesus sees the very best in you. How he interprets the busted out ceiling. The room is filled with mess making, property damage, vandalism. And Jesus looks up at this hole in the ceiling and he looks at these four men peering down and it says, Jesus saw their faith. That word faith, uh, it's the Greek word pistis. It can have two different meanings. It could be that Jesus looked up and saw four friends who were looking back at him with eyes that said, Jesus, we believe you can do this. You can heal our friend. That's a very real translation possibility. Another equally valid translation possibility is that Jesus looked up and saw four guys who had a no matter what you can count on us kind of love for their friend. Bible scholar Nijay Gupta points out that in the ancient world, if you ask the average person on the street, what does pistis mean, faith? 99% of them would say it's a willingness to bind yourself to a person or a group. It's the you can count on me factor. It was loyalty, allegiance, reliability, social concord, relationships. So these four guys... They just hauled their paralyzed friend up on a roof and busted some guy's ceiling in. And so Jesus is looking up and saying, now that's the you can count on me factor. That's faith. Now, either definition you go with, or both, they both work. Jesus sees what is the very best about you. And part of what you need to trust today is that when everybody else looks at you and they're saying, and they are a mess and they are a mess maker, when everyone is misunderstanding you and misinterpreting you, Jesus interprets you differently. Where, where nobody else sees it, Jesus knows how to spot the faith that's in your heart. Jesus sees what is the very best about you. Jesus sees what is good and noble and beautiful, even in the midst of all the messes you make. And Jesus celebrates this. But that's not all Jesus sees. That's not all that Jesus interprets. Jesus sees what is the very worst about you. Jesus sees your sin. Jesus doesn't misinterpret it. When your intent and your purposes are less than good, when they are regrettable, 
whatever it looks like for you to be at your very worst, Jesus sees it. As the story says, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law begin thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And it says, Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Jesus didn't only see what was in these Pharisees' hearts or the paralyzed man's heart. Jesus sees what is in your heart and my heart, which means Jesus sees not only the very best about you, but also the very worst about you, which includes the stuff that you're denying or kidding yourself about or hiding or just plain unaware of. It's been said you are better than you think you are and you are worse off than you think you are. And Jesus sees and correctly interprets all of it. Overheard at a church service recently, not our church, by the way, was a person leaning over to their friend and sarcastically saying, I'm surprised I didn't burst into flames the moment I walked in the door here. And for a lot of people, that comment kind of describes the way they feel about God. It's like, if I go in that building, I'm probably going to get blasted by a bolt of lightning. And so the reason they stay away from anything that smells like church or religion is that their image of God is a God who sees what is the very worst about them, a God that's ready to dole out punishment for all that bad stuff. But here is Jesus forgiving sins. Friend, your sins are forgiven. No sacrifices have been made. No killing of an animal or otherwise has happened. No blood has been shed. No temple has been visited. No debt has been paid. No criminal time has been served. The man has had zero conversation with Jesus. The friends have had zero conversation with Jesus. Jesus hasn't forced the paralyzed man to make a confession of his sins. Jesus hasn't demanded that the paralyzed man make a confession of faith. And Jesus simply says to the man, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Forgiveness is straight-up release. It's cancellation. It isn't, well, I'm going to make someone else pay later, or I'm going to punish someone else so that I can feel okay and not be mad at you. It's simply straight-up letting go. Friend, your sins are forgiven. Remember, Jesus is the radiance, the sunshine, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's being. And Jesus reveals the nature of God is to forgive sins. Jesus says, I want you to know that the Son of Man, that's his favorite nickname for himself, the human, the Son of Man, has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus was forgiving sins left and right long before he was ever murdered. Jesus was teaching forgiveness of sins and praying for forgiveness of sins long before his death. 
Jesus was never trying to change God's mind about us. He was never trying to convince God to forgive us. Jesus was only ever trying to change our mind about God. Jesus was revealing God's nature. God has always been forgiving. Humans are the ones who shout, crucify him, crucify him. And Jesus embodies God's forgiveness. God in Christ is the one who says, forgive them. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright points out, he says, John 3.16, the verse everyone knows so well, it doesn't say, for God so hated the world that he killed his only son. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. The Apostle Paul doesn't say God was reconciling himself to the world in Christ. He says God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. So Jesus reveals what God's orientation towards you has always been. Friend, your sins are forgiven. It's friend, I see your darkest dark. I see your ugliest ugly. I see the sin you flaunt, the sin you hide, the sin you are unaware of. Be released. You're forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus didn't come to save us from God, but to save us from sin and from death and principalities and powers. Sin is nothing to laugh at. It's a fatal disease that we need healing from. In accordance with scripture, sin is both actions and a condition. It's attitudes, thoughts, motivations. It's personal. It's social. It's systemic. It's distorted goodness. It's a toxin that we've been infected with. It's blindness, deafness, a hard heart, a stiff neck, overstepping the line, shortcoming, it's a beast crouching at the door, it's faithlessness, it's lawlessness, it's missing the mark, it's wandering from the path, it's breaking shalom. We don't have the wherewithal to save ourselves. Sin is a condition that we need rescued from. We're, we're like patients in a hospital and we need a great physician. And Jesus reveals what God's orientation towards you has always been. The God who says, friend, I see your darkest dark, and I forgive you. Which is a completely different picture than the picture of a God who throws lightning bolts at you or causes you to burst into flames if you get too close. Jesus said, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And immediately he stood up in front of him. He took what he had been lying on, and he went home, praising God. And everyone was amazed. They gave praise to God. They were filled with awe. They said, we have seen remarkable things today. Jesus simultaneously sees what is the very best about you 
and what is the very worst about you and his orientation towards you is release, forgiveness, healing, and wholeness. How could you not fall in love with this Jesus? How could you not fall in love with this God who sees the very best in you when nobody else does and he names it and he celebrates it? And he sees the very worst in you, the fatal disease that has infected you, and he forgives you, and he heals you? How could you not say, I want to be a disciple. I want to be a follower of Jesus. I want to learn to love God with all my heart and soul and mind and strength and learn to love my neighbor as myself. It's not only a story of what went on way back when. It's still going on. Jesus still has authority on earth to forgive sins. The people in this story at the end of the day said, we have seen paradoxos, remarkable things today. That word means contrary to opinion, contrary to expectation, strange, wonderful, marvelous, remarkable, unusual something you would scarcely believe. And this world is still full of paradoxos. It's still strange and wonderful and marvelous and remarkable. Unusual things still happen if you're watching. And so you you could try to explain them all away, or you could listen and watch at a deeper level to the Jesus who is still whispering in a hundred different ways to you. Friend, your sins are forgiven and released. I'm not against you. I'm for you. And how can you not say, I want to become a disciple. I, I want to be a follower of you, Jesus. I want to learn to love this God with all my heart and all my soul, all my mind, all my strength, and learn to love my neighbor as myself. So I want to offer space for you to respond in your own way. If turning to Jesus is the turning of an entire life, whether it's a 180 or just five degrees, of change if if it's turning boy we we are slow sometimes at that what does this mean for you to rethink to turn your heart and your life towards this Jesus spend some time with that
Thank you for joining us for a Sunday sermon from Neatart's Friends Church. We hope you'll join us soon for one of our in-person worship gatherings. For more information, hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. God's peace be with you, friends.